2: everybody and welcome you have tuned in to episode number 166 of the Linux in the Ham Shack podcast what you're Woo-hoo! looking at me <laughs> you're looking yeah. at me like i didn't do that well enough Right.
3: Welcome
2: to Linux in the Ham Shack. <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. That's where
0: I was afraid he was going with that. I was like, "Oh, you're failing miserably."
2: <laughs> anyway, I'm Russ, the host K5TUX. We also have Cheryl, who sits across from me. Hello, everyone. And Rich KD0RG. Hola. <laughs> Hola. Welcome to Linux in the Ham Shack. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, Excellent. so you're going to speak Spanish. We're just going to speak German. German yeah.
2: <laughs> no, he's going to speak Swiss, which is a very that's specific true. subdialect oh, of German. So. Yeah,
3: but I don't I don't know it. So I'll say, willkommen to, uh, to Linux in the Hamshack.
2: <laughs> hey, we can get Fab on here to do that.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's All true. Right.
2: So anyway, let's move on. We've got some amateur radio topics. We've got great interview later on. We've got... Some Linux topics, we've got Linux in the Ham Shop topics, we've got feedback, we've got recipes, we've got all kinds of stuff going on tonight. Rich, tell us about some Spy Radio stuff.
3: Well, I ran across this from uh, eHam, it was a link to this article here, and it's an Spy Radio set. Well, it doesn't happen very often, but here we have a Cold War Spy Radio set of which the origin is a mystery to us. For this reason, we're asking for your help in identifying it. The set is described in Louis Moustie's book, Wireless for the Warrior, Volume 4, as the French 1950s miniature, but recent research has revealed that it most likely is not French, but probably East European. The modular spy radio set consists of three small, identically sized metal boxes, each of which has a top lid and measures approximately 16.5 by 8.5 by 6 centimeters. A complete set consists of a mains power supply, a transmitter, and a receiver. At least two different versions of the set have been, so far, identified. And that comes from cryptomuseum.com. I think they're in the Netherlands, and they have a huge collection of crypto stuff. (laughs) And I I guess they they came across this radio, and they – they need help identifying it. And I don't know if we have any Cold War warriors that were in Eastern
2: Europe. But I, bet, I bet we have at least one that's listening. <laughs> there you, you go. Least, there yeah. you
3: go. Maybe can go help out. Maybe you can go help out. Exactly.
2: All right. Very cool. You can check that out at cryptomuseum.com. The link will be in the show notes. So uh, we also have the next story Victor Kilo, zero, Echo Kilo has over 50,000 QSOs. This is the Heard Island D de- expedition. You don't know this if you're not listening to us live, but right now, or actually perhaps a half an hour ago, Tom Medlin, W5KUB of the Amateur Radio Roundtable was interviewing these folks live down in Heard Island, which is just uh, north of Antarctica, which I guess everything is sort of north of there. But the reason that nobody is here listening to us right now live is because they're all over there listening to him now live, talk to the folks from Heard Island, but they have over 50,000 contacts from there. And actually, I checked on their website today, and they have almost 60,000 contacts going right now. They are racking them up. They are definitely racking them up, and they will be on the air down there in Hurt Island until April the 10th, 2016. Quote, we're having a busy afternoon here on the high bands with lots of stations taking advantage of some weekend time to work us. Propagation has been quite good today, and we are trying to take advantage of that. It's been a blast operating here, and we will still have more than a week to go. Unquote. Uh, This came from dxcoffee.com, but the VK0EK... The expedition is all over the intertubes, and uh, really not that hard to to find if you want to get out on this. I, I was trying to work them on forty meters earlier before the show. Uh, they were coming in pretty weak. They were on seven point zero eight five megahertz when I was trying to work them, and they were in a pile up like you wouldn't believe. Uh, they're obviously doing some good down there. So if you want to check out the de- expedition, they're working pretty much all the time. So
3: check them out before they go off the air on April tenth. You look at the pictures and of of it down there, and uh, you know it's cold, but they're all just they're just having a great time. I mean, everybody down there, it looked like they're really having a good time.
2: All right, and I'll do this one more here because I, I found this one just before the show started. Oh, this one's awesome! New radio antenna avoids unwanted signals. This one's got like all kinds of physics and stuff in it, so it's pretty cool. A new, simpler, cheaper, and potentially more effective way to prevent radio antennas from picking up unwanted signals has been created by researchers in the U.S. The laws of electromagnetism work exactly the same way if you run time in the opposite direction. One logical consequence of this is that an antenna designed to broadcast at a certain radio frequency will also be very good at absorbing radiation at that frequency. This is problematic for broadcast radio antennas, which will absorb radiation that is bounced back from surrounding objects. Andrea Alu and colleagues at the University of Texas at Austin have developed a design based on the traditional leaky wave antenna in which electromagnetic waves of certain frequencies couple to the space around the antenna and leak out as they travel along it. So very cool. Uh, that came from the Southgate Amateur Radio Club uh, and with additional information from Physics World, which is where the original article came from with a lot more description about how the antenna works and all that kind of cool stuff. So this sounds like a great thing for the future of amateur radio for antennas that broadcast frequencies but aren't necessarily as affected by the interference from return signals
3: on the same frequency path. I, I think it'll probably increase the dB of most uh, tri-band Yagis by 4 or 5. Cool. Uh, I, I mean that's just a, a guess, but I mean think of all that radiation that you know it like it it goes off the driven element and some of it gets bounced back off of the um the director and that 's not going to get you know absorbed anymore it 's just going to keep on going so that's fantastic
2: a way to increase gain with uh you know minimal effort or a minimal reconfiguration of an antenna plus you know reduce the the effect of you know, retransmitted radiation, only be a
3: win, right? A, a double win, a win-win. <laughs> it's a win-win, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I love physics.
2: Physics is indeed pretty incredible. I took an online course at Coursera a few months ago where it was about uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, and it talked about things like running time in reverse, and it's a very cool concept. It tends to be a bit mind-bending, though, I'm not, yeah. sure human, I'm not sure average human beings are expected to understand these kind of things. Uh,
3: probably not.
2: But that's uh, what we've got for our amateur radio topic. So we're going to move into some Linux topics and some open source topics. So, uh, Rich, talk to us about Linus
3: Torvalds. Well, Linux is turning 25. And so he was interviewed by IEEE.org, actually. I pulled out a couple of quotes here that I thought were interesting from, uh, from the Q&A. If I had known what, if I had known what, no, that's not
2: <laughs> Are you going to try your, uh, you're going to try your. Uh, I was
3: going to do it like this. If I had known what I know today. I'm pretty never sure have he's not from not New far. Delhi.
2: <laughs> I, I'm just guessing he's, he's not from Mumbai. Okay. I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. <laughs> he is now. <laughs> All right.
3: He's from Finland? Is that right? That's, yes, that's my understanding. If I had known... <laughs> I'm not going to try. If I had known <laughs> what I know today when I started, I would have never had the chutzpah to start writing my own operating system. You need a certain amount of naivete to think that you can do it, unquote. And then uh, another one is, um, quote, There really were two notable transitions for me. One fairly early on in 1992, which was when I started taking other developers' patches without always rewriting them myself, and one much later when, after applying all the patches myself, was starting to be a big pain point, and I had to learn to really trust all the various sub maintainers. Unquote. You know, it's neat to see uh, kind of the evolution, how things how things progress, and how you kind of got to. You know, let go a little bit, and how obviously how he kind of let go a little bit. And, you know, he still uh, sounds, it certainly sounds like he still runs the show over there. But obviously, there are a lot of people contributing. And
2: well, the, uh, the Linux kernel, as you know, is a benevolent dictatorship. All patches have to go through Linus.
3: Yes, I did know that. Yeah. It, it's I, always
2: interesting to hear from Linus because he's one of those guys who has no filter. I, I like people who have no filter.
3: <laughs> that's right. I agree.
2: Uh you can have, find out more about that interview at spectrum.ieee.org and of course the link to that will be in the show notes. Moving on with some open source topics, we have some flash topics. And I still haven't created a a nice uh stinger for that yet, but I'm i going to get around to it. I really will. Interestingly, speaking of stingers, I'm going to divert for a second to <laughs> like that's oh, never like that's oh, ever no. happened on a program.
3: Oh no. <laughs> Jonathan
2: Nitto asked about the stinger that's at the beginning of the show where it says welcome to Black Sparrow Media, um, which is something I actually did myself and that voices me if it wasn't obvious already. Um, but he wanted me to recreate it for him as a stinger for apparently some other project. Cool. I don't know where that will show up again, but I'm working on it. Okay. So that, uh, minimal diversion. Anyway, flash topic, Ubuntu Woo-hoo! 16.04 LTS. Xenial Xerus, yeah, they're just getting weirder, has new features. Rich, do you want to talk about this since you probably looked at them and I didn't?
3: A Xenial is constituting hospitality or relations between host and guest, and especially among the ancient Greeks. And then. Nice Scrabble uh, word. A Xerus. A Zerus is an African ground squirrel. So we have a polite African ground squirrel. I think,
2: I, <laughs> I think I've hit a few of those on the road. <laughs> Wow. It's
3: it's going to 1604. <laughs> We're almost there everybody and it's going to be a a long term support support yes. release. So we can uh, dump the 1404 or whatever whatever the old one is and and jump up to 1604. And there's, you know, Python 3.5, OpenSSH 7.2, Docker uh, was upgraded to 1.1 and you can you can actually get um I don't think it's officially released yet, but you can um if you go to the link in the show notes, you can you can download uh, ISOs. They're still betas, but uh, uh, the latest one is 25th of March. So, you know, they're getting there. All right. Very cool. And that's cool. a Flash topic. We're done. done. Yep, we're done. And we have another Flash topic
2: sort of along the same lines. Debian 8.4 yes. has been released. This is the latest version of Stebi- uh, Ste- 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 Stebian. <laughs> Stebian. Stebian Juicy. <laughs> <laughs> Debian 8.4, which is the stable version, otherwise codenamed Jesse, has a new release. Fourth update of the stable distribution, Debian 8. Uh, It adds corrections for security problems to the stable release, along with a few adjustments for serious problems. You can find more information about that at Debian.org. Link, of course, will be in the show notes. I didn't actually know they were going to put out new releases of Jesse since they've been working on Stretch. Uh, and actually putting out alpha releases of Stretch. But apparently they are still working on the stable release, too. So that's good to know.
3: Yeah, I think uh, when, when problems arise, um, they they fix them. And, it I, you know, it doesn't really affect too many people. If you got updates turned on, it just, it you know, it gets updated automatically. But if you're going to install Jesse on something, it's just nice because then, you know, you're not, downloading more right. data than is what is actually on the DVD be- to begin with. So, um, you know, it's just updated. So,
2: Right. Debian is a rolling release. This is something we have talked about a long time ago and really yeah. hasn't been brought up as a topic in a while. But as long as you're maintaining your updates, doing your app dash gets updates and apt get uh, disk upgrades and so on. That's right. You're, you're staying current. Uh, this is basically for the installer ISO. That's um, correct. So if you want your Jesse in this starting at a
3: starting point of eight point four, they have released that and another little flash topic here uh, Linux Gizmos is now hacker boards, but we still love linux so uh, linux gizmos was is a site that's been around i've I know i've wandered around them a few times a lot of single board computers and um, it's it's news uh news about stuff. <laughs> The reason I put it in is because they moved away, They because they were before they were Linux gizmos, they were, what, something else. They were Linux uh, devices, I think, Linux devices. And so they've moved away from the Linux name, and I just, I don't know if it's a bad thing or a good thing, or if it was just what they had to do. So just interesting, I thought.
2: I don't know anything about Linux gizmos. It's not a site I've ever visited, but now that I'm aware of it, I might have to check it out.
3: It's a, it's a news site, and I'm, it, you know, they, like like I say, a lot of gadgets and gizmos and, you know, tiny wireless rich com runs Linux on Snapdragon 820 and, you know, I just all these little boards and stuff. It, it,
2: SBCs are like a great topic, so.
3: I guess my the reason I thought it was significant is because they moved away from the Linux name. They've taken, you know, even though all that stuff runs on Linux, but maybe they see a future that, I don't know. I, I think <laughs> anyway. they've
2: broadened their scope to open source as opposed to Linux specific, and there's nothing wrong with that.
3: You're right. You're <laughs> always right, Russ. Not always you're right,
2: and you were right in the <laughs> middle of taking a drink. I know you
3: were. <laughs> <laughs> so we have another flash topic. Flash, and I think we talked about this before, but I don't think you could pre-order at the time. So you can pre-order the Ubuntu tablet.
2: We have talked about the Ubuntu tablet, I think, in episode 163. But, but you can actually buy it now. Oh, now
3: you can actually get one? You know what? Well, I still don't want one. There's, <laughs> there's a buy button, <laughs> and I'll run through the specs real quick, of the 300-pound uh, one. It's got a quad-core at 1.5 gigahertz, 2 gigs of RAM, 16 gigs of, uh, what is that, uh, solid-state memory, and 11.2 is usable. Um, you can expand your memory with an SD card, blah, 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 blah. It has Bluetooth, Wi Fi, GPS, an 8 megapixel rear camera, and a 5 megapixel front camera, 10.1 capacitive touch screen. Woo! Deliveries will take place starting from the second half of April. Buy it now while they're hot. All right, so
2: moving on to our third segment for the evening this is Linux in the Ham Shack. We have a story that was put in here by Rich about Northwest Digital Radio announcing the UDRC price and availability. So, Rich, go ahead and take this one.
3: Well, you know, Russ, there's been a lot of interest in the UDRC, Universal Digital Radio Controller, that uh, Northwest Digital Radio showed at MicroHams recently. And it turns out the UDRC will sell for $89.95, including a 3-foot HD15 male-to-male cable for direct connection to the Yaesu DR1-X repeater and a 6-foot mini-DIN. Six cable to connect to a standard radio data port. It works with a Raspberry Pi 2 or 3, which is not included, but they're going to try to make them available for sale by the end of April, along with a downloadable image. Nice. All software is open source and will be available on GitHub at the product release. And this all came from the Northwest Digital Radio site, and I think it's cool. And I think, I don't know, maybe we have somebody who knows a little more about it.
2: I don't know. It's not me. Do we have somebody in the room who's listening or maybe who can talk here who has any idea about any of this stuff? Do we have maybe uh Kilo 7 Victor Echo?
1: Yeah, it's John from Northwest Digital Radio.
2: All right. Excellent. Well, I tell you what, we don't have this uh, interview really lined out. Um, what we're hoping is that you can take this little blurb about the UDRC and kind of run with it and tell us everything we ever wanted to know about it.
3: Tell us all the syrupy goodness. <laughs> we'll start
1: from the very beginning. Yesu uh, came out with this uh, smoke and deal for getting a repeater. Uh, and the, the deal was uh, send them $500 if you live in the United States and they will ship you a brand spanking new repeater that uh, does uh, VHF or UHF, same unit. You can switch between VHF or UHF. It's fully synthesized. It's got a touch screen for setup. Um, it, can do up to 50 watts, but for a 100% duty cycle, you need to keep it down around 20. Uh, That's common. Some people kind of got excited about that, but uh, I've been working with a few different repeaters and that's kind of true of of any repeater. You you don't run it full bore. Uh, You put an external amplifier on it if you need more power. Anyway, uh, that $500 uh, got you the repeater. It covered the tax and the shipping, so it was a flat $500. Well, to me, that's kind of like the price of a mobile radio, a good dual band mobile radio, and it's a good dual band uh, uh, full up repeater. And if you're putting it on UHF, uh, you can get a pre-tuned duplexer, uh, one of the flat packs uh, that are common in UHF, uh, for about $100 uh, all tuned up out of China, so you're in $600 plus antenna and uh, coax, and you can have a full-up repeater.
3: So I bought yeah, one. I, I just have a question. Is is this repeater you're talking about, the DR-1X?
1: Indeed it is.
3: Okay. Is that that uh,
1: is Is
2: that system
3: fusion
1: capable? It is system fusion, uh, both digital and analog, and um, we can go into that a little more in a little bit. Okay. Um, but uh, – I looked at it and um, uh, I got my first one. And on the back was this uh, high density fifteen uh, accessory connector. Uh, for those that are familiar with a VGA connector on a on a computer monitor, it's the same connector. Um, and I looked at the documentation and looking at the various control options and the audio input and output on it. I said, you know what? I can make this into a D Star repeater. And so, uh, having done some conversions on other repeaters, uh, I figured that'd be kind of cool. So, I mocked it up, and I used uh, some sound cards and other devices I had around here to try some different modes to get it going. Once I convinced myself I could do it, uh, I got with my uh, uh, fellow uh, Northwest Digital Radio uh, partner at... uh, who does uh, our circuit design, and I said, you know, we could build a little circuit that uh, would sit on top of a Raspberry Pi as a Raspberry Pi hat uh, that would have all the components in it to do the modem to do D-Star. He says, I can design that, and so we designed it, and uh, I actually have our alpha board running uh, on a repeater here in the shack. I've actually had uh, D-Star capable on, on these repeaters since uh, almost a year now, um but we want to get the design right and uh, as we looked further into it uh, we realized uh if we would just extend out we could also put uh, a mini din 6 on the same board and it could plug into uh any radio with the standard amateur radio 9600 baud packet connector on the back and uh, could be used for a variety of modes uh packet uh uh, all of the uh, amateur radio digital modes. It could actually be used for an analog uh, repeater controller and so on. Uh, so that's what we've put together, and that's what we're planning to have available uh, at Dayton. We'll probably release the product before then, uh, but anyone uh, going to Dayton should be able to drop by our booth and uh, and pick one up. So um, it is eminent. Okay. So let me tell you a little bit about what it does. It has a high-end... A uh, sound codec chip on it. Um, it's manufactured by TI. That particular chip has uh, sample rates up to 96 kilohertz, which means we can get very high resolution um, data uh, uh, signal capture and also generate highly precise modem tones coming out the other end. And the nice yeah. thing about that is any other application, uh, say Direwolf, uh, in the packet world, uh, could up their, uh, their rate and uh, have a higher precision signal, which uh, should allow for uh, better detection at low signal levels and potentially higher baud rates uh, within the channels that we typically allocate uh, on one of the bands. So, uh, up in VHF, UHF. So, it's really exciting from that point of view. Uh, the particular sound chip that we're using, the the codec that we're using, um, there are some sources out there for that model number, but they're not really complete and they're not integrated uh, well. So, uh, we put one of our uh, uh, developers on it and we've written a, a real solid uh, driver for it, and it happens to be the same um, chip that we're using inside the UDRX, our UHF radio, that is software-defined and band-limited. Uh, so we'll be able to uh, cross-fertilize uh, applications between the two. They do use a different control bus in the in the two, uh, but uh, we're pretty excited about it and um, a lot of the people we've talked to are pretty excited about it, so hopefully in a thumbnail that's what it is, uh, with the DR1X repeater. If you have the newer firmware that uh, started being shipped uh, after mid-December last year, uh, you can run all three modes, um, Fusion Digital, Analog, and D-Star, all on the same repeater, and it will switch between the three on a per-transmission basis. And I've taken and hooked it up and put it on the busiest Fusion uh, chat room and the busiest D Star reflector and let them fight it out. And uh, I haven't been able to lock it up, <laughs> which is kind of nice. Um, if you have the older firmware, you can do analog ND Star or Fusion Digital ND Star. Um, but, um, uh, Yesu, uh, for the simple cost of you shipping the repeater to California will upgrade the firmware so that you can uh, run the newer version on it.
2: So this all sounds really exciting, but is this only for use in a repeater type scenario? I, I heard you talk about the six pin connector for, uh, regular ham radios. So is there another application besides a repeater application for this as well? Absolutely. Um, all of
1: the digital sound card modes uh, could be driven by it. So, um, you know, either us or someone else can port things like FL Digi or Direwolf Wolf or um, any of those and be, uh, hook those up to radios. I might mention that we're also doing um, our own. Linux distribution for the Raspberry Pi for it. Basically, it's the uh, Raspbian Jesse version uh, with an overlay. We overlay the kernel and some drivers and some applications and so on. Um, and we'll have that available where you can uh, just do an APT uh, get to upgrade uh, from a standard um, Raspbian install to uh, what we call our version Compass uh, to Compass, uh, or we will make available uh, preloaded images on SD cards for those that desire them.
2: All right, that's excellent. So the Raspberry Pi that this is a hat for, would that be the the – piece of hardware that would be running the FL Digi software? Correct. Alright, so you can just have a standard uh, Raspbian image or use your uh, customized Raspbian image on the Raspberry Pi which the UDRC is connected to and you'd have a full-blown computer that's sort of fully integrated with the functionality of the UDRC. That is correct. Oh, that sounds excellent. I know the price point on this is actually very attractive. I think I saw eighty nine ninety five 95 is what you were going to ask for this?
1: Yes, including uh, cables to hook it either to the HD16 or the DIN Mini-DIN 6. There's also provisions for your own uh, wiring through pads on the board or uh, adding headers uh, to put other connections onto it, but those were two that we felt people would make use of. Uh, But if you have a special application and you just need a really high-performance audio codec um, on your Raspberry hat, and you want to run off your own control signals from GPIO and audio, um, you can either use our connectors or your own uh, simply by uh, populating some headers that we have available.
2: All right, that's very cool, and I I understand from what you said um, that it runs off the DR1X, and you can simultaneously repeat analog, DSTAR, and system fusion without interruption of any of those
1: services. Yeah, I get nervous when people say simultaneously because uh, physics are involved. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sort of uh, in rapid sequence, perhaps. Rapid sequence, that's the the way to uh, characterize (laughs) it. Yeah, so the same repeater can operate all three modes on a per-transmission basis.
2: Wow, that's amazing. That's really cool. I know my my old amateur radio club that I'm still a member of uh, up in Maine they bought in on this uh, DR1X promo. They asked the, the membership if everybody would, you know, chip in a few bucks here and there, and the uh, people jumped on it. They had the five hundred dollars, I think, within a few hours, um, and they installed the DR1X uh, probably six months ago. This sounds like something I need to get them to attach to it.
1: Well, I'd appreciate that. Um, it can be addictive buying these repeaters. Uh, I now personally own three. <laughs> um, <laughs> and amongst the small team at, uh, at Northwest Digital Radio, we either own or have access to another three or so. Um, they have made a monumental increase in price through the end of June. You now have to pay $600, including shipping and taxing taxes Um, so anybody that still wanted to get one of these to experiment with um, if you have a club and remember a club is four people one of whom must have a ham radio license um, you can order one or if you're an individual with a coordination uh, either in hand or documentation that it's in process they will sell it to you for that price direct from yesu
2: that's uh, good information. I didn't realize that the club thing only required one call sign. I, I remember it was a question on my, my amateur extra test.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, the the rule says you must have four members. And if you're going to have a trustee, one of them has to have a license.
2: Excellent. So, John, the last time we talked to you, you talked to us about Northwest Digital Radio. That was back in episode 90. This is episode 166, so it has been some time. If you could remind us, uh, we, we need to... Let others know who the other folks who are over there at Northwest Digital Radio putting out these great products.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. Um, what we talked about back then, as I recall, is our uh, UDRX, uh, w- which is the 70-centimeter uh, band-limited uh, uh, SDR. It's 25 watts. Um and uh, it has uh, gone through some evolution in the design since then. And we uh, ran into some delays for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into. Uh, last fall, we added another member to the team, uh, Jeremy McDermott, uh, November Hotel uh, 6 Zulu. And it's like been like putting an afterburner on the project. So we've been making a lot of progress uh, through the winter uh, on that uh, design. Uh, originally we were designing our own single board computer to go in it because the Raspberry Pi really wasn't out yet. Uh, we have since modified the design to use the, uh, Raspberry Pi with the 40 pin connector. So that would be a two or a three, uh, what we ship with will depend on a couple of things. Uh, one thing uh, with the three is it does have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, uh, which doesn't do you so much good when you're inside of a Faraday shield, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, and we don't want it interfering with the main purpose of the radio. But we we're we're doing lab experiments on that and and seeing uh, with if we just need to disable that or we can leave them enabled or or whatever. Anyway, so that that project still. Right. Uh, uh, moving forward, uh, I expect we will um, have uh, have product out on that uh, later this year. Uh, in the intervening time, uh, we did develop a hat for the uh, Raspberry Pi uh, that has a DVSI Ambi 3000 chip on it. Uh, that chip is capable of doing the uh, voice encoding and decoding for uh, D Star, some of the fusion modes, they're doing some interesting things with fusion that uh, we could discuss at another time. But some of the fusion modes, uh, the DMR mode, and so on. And if you get around the uh, intellectual property licensing issues of DMR, um, there are some people that uh, uh, are using them in applications in that area. Uh, we've uh, also taken that and married with a Raspberry Pi. It uses the, uh, uh, the older, what is it? 24 pin standard, uh, or 26, whatever it was, um, which is upward compatible with the 40 pin, um, we marry those together and we create what we call an ambi server, which is a server that can sit on your LAN or even the Internet and applications can access it to do ambi encoding and decoding, uh, wrap that in the pro- per protocol and you can get on one of the digital voice networks, uh, whether it be D-Star or, or one of the others. Uh, then we took that same basic design and put it in a USB uh, stick that uh, looked like a thumb drive, so we called it the Thumb DV. We did that uh, in part uh, with a request from Flex Radio, the manufacturer of the uh, high-end uh, SDR radios. And uh, they took it and wrote the software so that you can plug it into the back of their radio, which has USB ports, and do DSTAR. Um, on the Flex radio, and uh, it's very popular on HF with that, and uh, and the models that have VHF, uh, it's also used there. Uh, as far as the rest of the team, uh, we have uh, uh, Basil Gunn, uh, who is uh, uh, one of our developers. Uh, Dennis, whose la- last name I can never pronounced correctly, so Dennis, sorry about that, uh, who is uh, a world-class RF designer, Um, and then Brian, who runs the uh, day-to-day operations of the company and also does our circuit design and a lot of of our electrical engineering. So that small team uh, is working on all these products, and uh, we've got others in the pipeline uh, once we get the UDRX
2: out. Well, very good. Like, I think we probably covered everything we need to know about the UDRC and you said you should have some supply at Hamvention because um, you'll release it shortly before that, I assume. Um, That's our plan. Well, that is good and I, I hope I get a chance to to visit you with you up in Hamvention. I don't know yet if I'm going to be there, but if I am, I will definitely try and scope you out. Well, certainly come
1: by the booth. We probably will have some of our thumb DVs there as well and uh, some other things if people want to drop by.
2: All right, that sounds good. So, um, Rich, do you have anything to add to this? Are you still here, Rich? I am. I
3: uh, am. I have a. I have a totally unrelated uh, question for John, if he's <laughs> if he's willing.
1: Well, it depends on what the question is. <laughs> it's it's like I,
2: I, noticed, I always say: you can ask the question, just don't expect an answer.
3: I've noticed you've talked about AmperNet and Net Forty Four, and I'm just wondering uh, because URO Node has a has a new release, and I'm I'm wondering if you can. In like five sentences, give us an overview of what it is.
1: Uh, I'm sorry I missed what you said about the new release.
3: URO node? URO node? I'm not sure how he says it. There's, There's a new release of that. That's the N1 URO software that apparently runs on AmperNet. Am I saying that correctly?
1: Right. So I'm not particularly familiar with his code. Let me just give the the short story of what's happening with AmperNet. Um, uh, just three or four years ago uh, at um, DCC in Atlanta, uh, I got up and uh, kind of gave a State of the Union on uh, what had been happening with Net44. Uh, you know, we've had this fabulous resource of uh, 16 million IPv4 uh, addresses available to Ham Radio for over 30 years, and um, it kind of had been languishing. And so I presented uh, several ideas there, including um, the notion that we really should move forward with technology and start using things, uh, uh, some standard solutions, instead of doing the normal ham thing, which is take something and figure out the hardest way to do it. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, there'd been some advances in networking and so on and suggested that it might be good to start – um, interconnecting uh, all of this IP address space um, directly on the internet. Um, uh, traditionally, it had been a bunch of uh, uh, IP IP tunnels uh, in a in a mesh formation and. Uh, you know, with dynamic IP addresses for the gateways and so on, it was constantly in a state of flux, and you never knew if something was going to be up or or not. So I suggested maybe we should start moving towards things like BGP and, and putting segments of that network directly on the Internet so they could be addressed directly, uh, both in and out, and then, you know, use good firewall, firewall technology to protect assets and things that would actually go out over the air. Since that time, a number of projects have really kicked off. One of the big ones uh, here in my area is is HamWan, the original, and then there's been a few other implementations around the country and the world uh, that have been adopting their uh, technology. Um, They're using the uh, 5.8 gigahertz, 5.9 gigahertz ham band uh, to build a microwave uh, network with... Uh, user access points and and trunks into uh, data centers. We've had a couple of big data centers here in the Seattle area uh, that are donating bandwidth for uh, interconnection with the rest of the internet and uh, using basically off the shelf uh, higher performance Wi-Fi. Equipment uh, we're building this uh, this network out. Uh, anyone that wants to learn a bit about it, go to hamwan.org. That's H A M W A N dot O R G. And they have the specs for what they're doing and the, uh, the maps of uh, the nodes that are out there. And what's happened really interestingly with that is a lot of uh, mountaintop repeater sites. Uh, now all of a sudden have a microwave link back into the Internet for whether it be IRLP or DSTAR or AllSTAR or Echolink or whatever, where they might have been paying a fairly fairly hefty price for ISP service, WISP service, uh, up to that mountaintop. They're now able, uh, for the cost of the equipment, to join the network, which uh, for an end node is, you know, less than $200, um, they're able to have a reliable Internet connection uh, using this resource uh, from the AmperNet. So uh, a lot going on. Um, i suggest visiting uh, Amper, uh, is it Amper.org uh, and portal.amper.org. Uh, you can get address space um, allocated to you. And there are uh, facilities like Hamland that will VPN tunnel the people that can't get direct BGP, um, and then BGP, you're segmented out to the rest of the Internet. So it's a way to build up the ham radio network. Of course, it only should carry ham radio-related traffic. can't be used for commercial purposes. Uh, But it's a lot of fun to have that kind of capability uh, available to people. And, of course, if you're a Linux user, you've got all the tools you need. Absolutely.
3: Okay. Well, that was uh, way more than. (laughs) Asking you shall receive. You, you, you've, (laughs) you've, you've you've opened up this huge like. It's not just a rabbit hole. It's like a oh, I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, I'll be delving into that. I guess (laughs) it's a badger hole, is what it is. It's a badger hole. All well, right.
1: maybe I gave you too much information. You know, a little TMI here.
3: <laughs> well, uh, it's just interesting. You know, we think of the traditional, you know, packet um, nodes. Uh, you know, hooked to my two meter radio with my TNC and and <laughs> and just so much has changed. And I, I've been looking into it recently, and there's all these different. Um, I don't. I don't even know. I anyway, it's a little overwhelming right now.
1: Yeah. So you know, uh, you know, tying this all back together. If you're tying. Uh, repeaters using the UDRC or some other uh, uh, facility uh, over that network uh, to, you know, build these massive uh, voice over IP networks, or you're using our UDRX uh, to provide that uh, last mile coverage where you can't get to it on microwave or long haul coverage. Uh, I predict that we'll be able to do um, fairly high bandwidth uh uh, you know 30 40 50 mile links uh um, and, excuse me data rate there are some limits because of the regulations uh we've got to keep it in a 100 kilohertz channel on 70 centimeters but we can pack a lot of bits into 100 kilohertz with some advanced uh, uh modem techniques
3: very cool yeah it's uh it's it's really fascinating um yeah and just uh you know just linking repeaters, you know, I, I think, the way, how did you word it? Low latency repeater linking. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's worth it right there. So, very cool.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, if you're interested in, in uh, digital voice uh, standards for uh, um, amateur radio, um, I did a talk at DCC last year. Uh, so, if you look up K7VE, DCC, 2015, um, I have a pretty good discussion of the different uh, standards and protocols and, and how they interact. So there's a wealth of information uh, out there to help people to uh, put together their own great ideas and expand them and, uh, and move them forward. And I certainly encourage people to do that. And of course, the open source Linux uh, world is where these things can happen. And we can share with each
3: other. Absolutely. Russ, did you have anything else?
2: honestly i have nothing else i mean uh, i'm sure we could open up all kinds of cans of worms and go on forever and ever but i think we've uh touched on what we needed to touch on and probably a few things that uh we didn't <laughs> but that's all right <laughs> um sure <Fair but>, enough <laughs> <laughs> but i'm i'm glad you were here john um it's, it's always great when you're on the show we get uh a great deal of information out of you guys and i know you're you have a blog over at kilo seven victorecho.org and northwest digital radio i think is at north nw digital radio.com i think is where you guys are at all right and is there anything else uh, you want to say about like uh anything i don't know <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm uh, just glad that I could be here. Um, we have uh, a couple of discussion groups as well. You can uh, find out about those through uh, one of those blogs and, um, uh, and websites and uh, encourage people to join us on those uh, uh, with your permission. Uh, when this uh, uh, podcast is put up, we'll link to it from from our site to give it some more promotion. And, uh, again, uh, my sincere gratitude for the invitation to participate with you guys uh, and hope to see you at Dayton if you make it.
2: Well, you absolutely have permission to link back to us. That's uh, no problem whatsoever, and I really appreciate you uh, taking some time out on short notice to come here and talk about this. You know, it's nice to hear the information direct from the people who produce, you know, the products and the software and everything uh, because you obviously know it best, and that's where we want to get the information from so i guess we'll let you uh get back to your uh regularly scheduled evening and i hope we get a chance to talk to you uh on the show again real soon and i and i do hope i get to to visit with you at hamvention all righty well 73 Saul. all right 73 john take care 73 john all right well, that was excellent that was uh john hayes from northwest digital radio kilo 7 victor echo lots of information there about the udrc lots of cool stuff and uh if you're a repeater owner or, or you want to play around with cool technology and Raspberry Pis and all that neat kind of stuff or uh, just a tinker and have a radio that you can plug a six-pin cable into, you can uh, play around with that. And $90, pretty reasonable for an independently developed piece of hardware. So very cool. It so. is. It is <laughs> <it's>
3: very <laughs> cool, which is why we had them on. I like their angle at the market. You know, they're not trying to control everything. They're like, here's a piece of hardware. Go have fun you know i just I, I i like uh well, that's sort of the ham radio way right absolutely and i was all gonna
2: right. i was gonna complain about the you know the whole codec two thing and open source codecs and all that because the the product they have is based on the Ambi chip, but the thing about the Ambi chip is you kind of need it for d star so I, I completely understand why they went that way, and if you want your if you want your piece of hardware to integrate with d star, you have to be Ambi
3: it was developed by hams and it was kind of like hey, maybe. Maybe if there wasn't something available, maybe we should have waited or f- figured out if we could find something available instead of forcing the issue with the uh, w- with the uh, the Ambi chip. Now, um, I don't know. Is it supposed to come open soon or something? Anyway, and then the whole… Everybody's going a different direction. Oh, we have we're well, we're using Ambi, but we're implementing it differently, so it doesn't actually work. And and then you know you got guys like Northwest Digital who are like, well, we I think we can make it work together. So it's really uh, it's cool that they're able to do that.
1: Uh, I'll just interject that certainly the Codec Two could be ported to both of these devices.
2: It wouldn't be useful for D Star though because it doesn't encode properly for D Star.
1: Right, but if you wanted to build a Codec Two repeater you could use the UDRC if you wanted to have an end radio
3: you could use the UDRX there nice. you go John i think a lot of the frustration that the regular hams feel it's like okay wait a second okay we got this over here i need a i need a radio for that and then we got this over here and it's like you know nothing works with anything and what do you buy and it's tough. It's, it's tough to get into any of this when you're automatically like saying, okay, I'm going to go over here with, with, with these guys, and we're not going to talk to you over there. Northwest Digital is trying to at least patch it together. I don't know why the, you know, the uh, manufacturers couldn't have done that in the first place. That's, that's where the frustration comes from.
2: Yeah. Feel free to hang out and interject uh, all night if you, if you so desire. And uh, we did, at the end of that last story, touch on AmperNet. So, Rich, you had some information here about AmperNet. So why don't you go ahead and work
3: on that for a little bit. I'm glad that John was able to shed a little light on it. This popped up, you know, I'm on those Debian lists. And URO node, I saw that. I'm like, oh, what is that? I've never heard of it. Even even after all that discussion,
2: you still have no idea what you're talking about.
3: I, I have... A better um, understanding of what it is, URO node is basically packet node software for Linux, and it's still being developed by N1URO. And what I liked about this is uh, he has uh, written some scripts that will install it onto a Raspberry Pi, and that's kind of what really caught my eye because man it, it made it simple. There's also a script that'll put it onto onto your desktop machine as as well. And it just handles everything and it looks for for everything. And it's um and and then it tells you where you need to go. You know, you need to go fix these configuration files and you need to go fix these configuration files and he tells you where they are. Um, I just thought it was a, a nice complete package there. The reason I was asking John about the ampernet is because this URO node supports uh, Ampernet and Rose and a bunch of other—I don't know what to call them—protocols, perhaps that I've never, I never even really knew were out there. They're certainly not talked about. So that's what—that's why I went down the Ampernet um, road, and then I found out about the 44 block of our own IP addresses that nobody's using. And I—I I, I know I've heard that um, that talk that John gave at last year's DCC. And I just didn't I, I guess I didn't know what he was talking about. But it's really uh it's really neat. So anyway, this software is easy to uh to put on and I'm positive you could uh run a um just a, a simple packet node using this software. That's all. Oh that's it? Yeah. Other than it's cool. <laughs> and it's being and it's still being um developed. I I didn't have enough time this week to uh to really look into it. I did install it. Oh, here it is. Uh, URO node, um, AX25, of course, OSI layer 4, and I'm not sure what that is, but NetROM and ROSE it supports, and then AMPR is that amper that we were talking about, FlexNet it supports, and then port, multi-port digi, uh, yes, and I suppose that has something to do with um, maybe APRS, I'm, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of people think packet is dead, and I, you know, obviously with the APRS it's not. It might be a little complicated, <laughs> but I just, uh, I don't want to see it go away because I think it's still a very useful, useful mode for us amateurs.
2: What, one of the first digital things I did when I got into packet radio, or when I got into ham radio, was packet. And I still have an MFJ 1294 B? Is That, that is sounds like, right. Is that even close? Uh, packet TNC somewhere. Um, I actually had that hooked up to an a Radio Shack HTX two oh two. Yeah, that's the uh That's the two meter handy talkie from yes. Radio Shack, yes. That's how I used to do packet radio. I don't nice. somehow somehow I don't think that is the right let me see, MFJ
3: It's not a twelve ninety four, but I know it's close. Twelve ninety uh, two? I said twelve ninety two, I think that's what I said. Oh, okay. Yeah, you might have. And while you're looking, I'll sing a little song about um getting digital. Let's get digital, digital. <laughs> I want to get digital. Let me see your waterfall, your spectrograph. I want to see your signals. Let's get digital. Okay.
2: Okay, it's an MFJ-1270C connected to a Radio Shack HTX-202. And that's how I did packet. And oh, I have not done packet. Look at that. I have not done packet. And actually the the interface cable between my HTX202 and my MFJ1270C <laughs> is the only piece of ham radio kit i have actually built myself. Oh nice.
3: <laughs> See, packet got you home brewing. That's right. <laughs> Back in 1992. <laughs> you know, i've uh, i've messed with Direwolf. I I installed Direwolf and then hooked up my Baofeng just to the mic port. You hooked up your
2: Baofeng, sounds like a personal problem, but my Baofeng <laughs> radio.
3: Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and and then there's a way to um, send the data from Direwolf, which is a basically a sound card modem. Right. Sound card, yes. Yes. TNC, uh, yeah, I'm getting a uh, software terms- TNC. There you go. And sent it right over to Disaster and things started popping up. It was the coolest thing. It was just awesome. Popping up. So, popping up on the map. Things are popping up all over the place. And, oh, (laughs) I I should... (laughs) I was getting so excited. (laughs) So, uh, I'm also excited about this next topic, a brief tutorial on building software from Source. Okay,
2: good. I'm glad we have got to this now so I can get through it and, like, take a break. (laughs) But anyway, the reason I put this in here is because I got a question and I can't remember if it was on Google Plus or not, but someone asked me, and and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the information in front of me, but the, the basic question was, I heard on the show recently that you've been building a lot of packages from source as opposed from installing them out of the binary repositories. This is cool. My question is, if you're doing things that way, how do you uninstall a package if you've built it from source? And I was like, Well, that's a really good question. How do you uninstall a source built package? (laughs) Um, Because if you're building things from the package repo, all you have to do is an app-get uninstall and that pretty much removes everything. But if you're building something from source, maybe it's not so simple. So I thought I would take a little look at building things from source in general. If you want to install something from source, you obviously have to get the source. Well, how do you get the source? There's a couple of ways. You can go to a website like SourceForge or GitHub or any number of other places that will host a source package. Those source packages are usually in like tar.gz format or something like that. Basically an archive of all of the source files that are necessary to build the package you want to build. So you have to download it as a tar.gz or a .zip file or something along those lines. It also happens that Debian and Debian-based Distributions have source repos. You can download and install binary versions of your applications, which are already pre built and basically just involves copying the binaries onto your system in their appropriate locations and then everything just sort of runs. Or you can app get the source code for those applications and then you have to build them. And then you can build them and then install them and all as well. From a Debian perspective, if you want to install a binary package, you typed apt-get install name of package. If you want to install the source of a package, you type apt-get source name of package, and it will download the source of the package. Now, there are a couple of options you can specify to apt-get when you're downloading a source package you can specify dash dash compile or dash dash download only, which is actually download dash only. If you specify app dash get compile source package, it will download the source information and it will build that source information into a deb, a.deB And at that point, you can just do a dpkg i Something.deb and it will install the package. And that will be a source compiled package that you install in binary format. Now you can also just say download only and then you can build the package yourself. And there's a whole long list of things you need to do to actually build a source package in Debian. And this is really not sort of about that because that would not be a brief tutorial. On building software from source that would be a lengthy tutorial on building software from source and we're not about that right now and like i said you can also download a tar.gz or a zip file or something like that and then you'll have a source package and usually what you have to do at that point is you have to unarchive the package which usually involves something like the unzip command or the tar command now if you have a tar.gz file for example the options you would give to tar would be xzf which is extract in gzip format the file name of file pretty straightforward if it was for example a tbz2 or a tar.bz2 that's an archive in bzip2 format and you would specify tar xjf name of file and that will extract a bz or a bzip2 compressed archive into a source directory this of course assumes that you have bzip2 and gzip libraries installed on your computer and if you don't that's a mere app dash get install of gzip and bzip2 away so you have to have those in order for that to work once you've done that you will have a directory which contains all of the source code for the project that you want to build whether it be fldg or whatever it is that you have in 99 percent of the cases you will have to change directory into the top level of the new thing you just extracted, which will be like FLDigi or CQR log or whatever it is, you know, the thing that you want to build. And there's a there's a roughly standard method of building software that you can employ. Generally speaking, you will have to do a configure, a make, and a make install. And what configure does is it runs through a script. And it checks your system to make sure that you have all of the necessary libraries and development packages installed on your system to properly build from source code. If the configure fails, it usually will error out with a message saying, you know, I couldn't find the gzip library or I couldn't find the asound library or something like that. In which case you'll have to install the necessary library or development package. And then rerun the configure script. When your configure script actually gets through all of its steps and successfully and gives you a good exit code, then you can type make. Make will actually build your software. It will go through all of the C packages or Perl packages or whatever it is that you're building, compile them all together, and give you the necessary binary files that you need to run the application. And then you'll type make install. This instructs the make file to actually move those built binary packages or built binary files to the proper place on your file system so that you can execute them. You don't necessarily have to do this. You can execute them from the build location if you know where they are and what they're called. But generally, you want to move them into some place like user bin or user local bin that your system recognizes as a proper place to run an application out of. The idea the idea then maybe this is coming a long way around to the question of how to uninstall something, but anyway, it's kind of important to understand where where the bits of these things that you've built actually wind up. When you're building something from source, generally speaking, the configure script will put all your applications in a top level directory which is slash user slash local. And what slash user slash local is for is a place where locally built applications get stuck. Things that are built out of the repos and installed in binary format usually go into just slash user. So if you're installing fldigi, for example, from the binary repositories, you will most likely find it in slash user, slash bin, slash fldigi. If you're building it from source, you will most likely find it in slash user, slash local slash bin, slash fldg It's not necessarily the case because configure, the configure scripts, generally allow you to specify parameters. One of the parameters you can specify is the prefix. So you could say configure dash dash prefix equals slash user, and then go on from there. And then it would install fldg, for example, in slash user slash bin, slash fldigi and then you wouldn't necessarily be able to distinguish that particular installation of fldigi from one that was installed from binary packages so you probably want to specify a prefix of user local and like i say in most cases if you're building from source that's already specified not necessarily but probably you do your dot slash configure dash dash prefix equals user local it runs through everything looks good You type make, it builds, everything looks good, type make install, and what make install does is it instructs the make file, which is just a script basically, to go through and move all of the newly created binaries from the build directory into the application run directory, which will probably be user local bin, user local sbin, something like that. Now we get to the point of uninstalling. So you've got all this stuff. If you've installed a program from source, all of these things are probably in user local. A good make file will have an uninstall option. So you can go into the source directory where you've built the software and you can type make uninstall. And if that works, then what it will do is it will go to the place where all of those source files were built and moved to and simply remove them. And that's as easy as it gets for doing an uninstall. That may work, that may not work. If it doesn't work... Then, assuming that you have created your software in the user local directory, then usually you'll just have to go into slash user slash local, and then some subdirectory like bin, sbin, lib, spool, var, something like that, and look to see where it put those binary files, and simply remove them, you know, like an rm-f, fldigi, or whatever. Um, And that's usually all it takes. Usually the binary files wind up in bin or sbin. Library files will wind up in user local lib. Uh, Some files might wind up in user local var. Some might wind up in user local lib. But that local directory is one where source built files generally wind up. And you can specify, like I said, in most configure scripts that user local is the root. That way you'll always be able to differentiate that you built this from source and it went into user local as opposed to something you installed from binary which went into just user another place you can put these files is opt slash opt this is a great way to specify things you've built from source because it is apart from everything else on the system anything if you if you specify for example dot con, dot slash configure uh, dash dash prefix equals slash opt then everything will be under slash opt. And you'll know that if you built this file and it doesn't work or whatever the reason is, you can just pretty much wipe out everything under opt and nothing on your system will be affected. Just the stuff you built from source. Um, I believe opt is a sun microsystems convention for third party built software, but it still works today in, in all Unix and Linux systems. So uh, slash opt is a great place to put source built software. Usually, In most applications, if you're building from source, if you do a dot slash configure dash dash help, the configure script will show you all of the options you can specify. But in in every case that I've ever seen, as far as I know, dash dash prefix is always an option. Uh, So user local and opt are great places to put source built software, so you'll always be able to find them. And like I said, well-constructed make files We'll have a make uninstall option, so all you have to do is once you've built it and installed it, you can go into the build directory, type make uninstall, and it will just take the software out and you're done. There can always be problems. You can have missing libraries. You can have missing development packages. There can be any number of reasons why your source project doesn't build properly, and that is way beyond the scope of what I'm talking about here. That is a basically an overview of a couple of different ways you can build things from source. Uh, a couple of different ways you can get rid of things you've built from source, and some good conventions on how to indicate to your system and to yourself which software was built from source and which was installed from binary.
3: The first thing I had to do is go ahead and um, add to my um, repositories the deb sources for <laughs> because I always uncheck them for some reason. I don't know why, and now maybe I, I'll, I'll start playing around with building from from source, I didn't realize you could do it with apt-get. That that's cool. So yeah, I I, I manned apt-get. Uh, yeah, apt-get source dash dash compile, and you can uh, build a package. That's just pretty right. cool.
2: This this doesn't really mean a whole lot in most people's systems. It's it if you have a highly tuned system, if you have uh, built a custom kernel that's built efficiently.
3: Oh, that's why you'd want to do it. Right.
2: Then, then you would not have... Not just a,
3: because you can.
2: Right. Not just because you can, but because that that software will actually be built to the tuning parameters of your kernel. And for some low-powered systems or embedded systems, that might actually give you a performance advantage, but you know, in, yeah. in, in a modern computing system, probably not, um, unless you're just a really super advanced user and this is the kind of thing you like to do. Yeah, it's not me. <laughs> right. So anyway, there's a, a a really simplistic guide to building things from source. There's there's really a lot more to it, but that's the uh, kind of two ways that things are done. And and then of course, sort of assumes that the package is built with a make file and all that, because there are lots of other ways to do it. There are there are Perl scripts where you have to invoke Perl to create the make file. There's like Automake. Um, where you have an AC local file or an AC4 file that generates the make file. Usually, when it comes to building stuff from source, it's not a big deal because there is a help file, like a readme file, that explains to you all of the steps you have to go through to build from source. And they try and make it easy as possible. I mean, it's usually not that difficult. The problem comes from when you actually go through their steps and something breaks in the middle. And and unfortunately, that's sort of beyond the scope of this little talk. So, uh, hopefully, that will give you some insight into building from source uh, by the apt method and by the source method, and also for install or uninstalling packages um, once you've built them from source. Uh, but with that, we probably should move on. We've got lots of feedback to get to, and uh, but before we get to that feedback, we have
3: some music, and this music actually came from you, Rich. So you want to tell us about it? It did, uh, you know, Jamendo. You can search Jamendo, and I was searching Jamendo for amateur radio terms like signals. I mean, radio is tough because you get a bunch of uh, bunch of stuff, but signals and oh, Morse code. There is songs with Morse code in it, and hard they're hard to find. And I threw antenna in there, and I came across a a band called Antenna Trash, and this yes. song is Chaotic by Antenna Trash, released in two thousand eight. These boys are from Italy. There's been some
2: good open source or you know Creative Commons music come out of it at least. So we've we've played a few of them on the show.
3: I like the sound of it. Doesn't mean you will, but I don't, you know, care.
2: I actually have to say I previewed it a little earlier and it sounded pretty good to me. So we're gonna all hear it now. Excellent. All right, here we go. Chaotic from Antenna Trash. Tele trash. Pretty good. Punky.
3: P- <laughs> punky lo fi. Kind of stuff. <laughs> it's got that I don't know, that sound. It reminds me of like an eighties television show. Uh,
2: <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, a good selection there. I enjoyed that actually. I hope
3: everybody did. They were rocking out.
2: I hope so, too. I hope they were stomping their feet and swinging and hitting things and, <laughs> and breaking stuff and all, all kinds of good stuff. That's, that's what you do to that kind of music.
3: Exactly. I, I, don't, I don't know what they do in Kansas, though, and we got an email from Kansas. <laughs> they, they stand on tuna cans. and look looking for the back of their heads. That's, that's what they do. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
2: This was uh, from Steve, KD0IJP. Oh, by the way, we're in announcements and feedback. That's what we're doing here. This is some feedback. And he says, Russ, at all, first let me say that I have been listening to your show for about nine months now and I have gained a lot of good information. Thank you for your efforts. I have tuned into the live broadcast a number of times now as well. I've been poking around with the Debian Ham Radio Pure Blend distribution for a little while now. I learned about this from your show and I think it's an interesting idea. I thought maybe I would share a couple of observations and ask a couple of questions. I think the idea of having a Linux distribution that comes preloaded with a bunch of ham radio software is a great thing. I also, think it's a great, I also think it's great that this is supported by members of a mainstream distribution such as Debian. I hesitate, however, to give this to a Linux newbie. Now, if we had a distribution of Linux Mint, say, with all the ham radio software installed, then we'd really have something. So with that said, I have been exploring the idea of doing a basic Jesse install with my desktop preference, say Cinnamon. And then installing the ham radio software using the meta packages that are maintained by the pure blend group. And this is something I actually addressed in the last episode. I believe that you said the one time you were doing this, uh, this, however, has brought up a question that I hope maybe you can answer. The pure blend meta packages are not included with Jesse rather. They're archived in the testing distribution stretch. Despite my years of Linux use, I am not a Debian expert. I am a long time Slackware user. Well, we forgive you. And so I'm wondering what is the best way to use those meta packages with Jesse? Should I add why do I feel like Casey Casey, i right? So I'm wondering what is the best way to use those meta packages with Jesse? Should I add the testing distribution to the repository list and then app yes install them? Will doing that end up install a bunch of testing packages on my system and make it less stable. And this is a long distance request.
3: <laughs> is that the way Slackware users sound? I don't know. <laughs>
2: all right enough of that uh will doing that end up installing a bunch of testing packages on my system and make it less stable is it possible to instead download the meta packages from someplace and install them by hand if so where do you download them from thank you for any further insights that you can give me and keep up the good work thanks steve kd0ijp well cool thanks steve and i have a great answer to your question there is a concept in Debian called apt-pinning, P-I-N-N-I-N-G, apt-pinning. And what this allows you to do is have multiple distributions identified on your system and only install software from the repos that you choose based on a set of priorities. You basically pin a priority to a certain distribution or to any number of distributions on your system and then software packages are installed based on that priority or based on a forced priority that you specify. There's going to be a link in the show notes uh, to a great little tutorial that describes how apt-pinning works, but here's the basic idea. You have a file slash etsy slash apt slash slash sources dot list, and in that, you have a list of all of the repos you want to be able to install software from. You can... specify in there, or in sources.list.d, by way of subfiles, any number of distros. So you can have stable, testing, and unstable all specified in there. And then you configure in another file, slash etsy, slash apt, slash preferences, the priority for any of those distributions. Uh, There's a certain syntax to that. And that syntax is indicated in the tutorial that will be in the show notes. You give them a number rated priority. For example, you can say that stable distribution is 700 priority, testing distribution is 650, and unstable is 600. Whatever the highest number is, is the highest priority. So if you don't specify, you will get packages from the highest priority distribution which in that particular case would be stable. Then you do an app-get update, and it updates your system with packages from all of the distributions that you have specified in the priority order that you have also specified. Now, the nice thing about this is there are two ways to then install packages on your system. So let's say that your system is based on Debian Jesse, uh, which is eight stable, uh, and you have given that the highest priority. Then if you do, for example, an app-get FreeDV, it will install by default from the repo with the highest priority, which will be stable. Now, there are two flags you can give to app-get to alter this behavior. The first one is to say app-get install FreeDV slash, and then the name of the distribution. For example, unstable. What that will do is it will attempt to install the FreeDV package from the unstable distro and attempt... To satisfy the dependencies of that package from your high priority distribution. And I hope I'm making this clear because it's kind of important. So, what it will attempt to do is install the free DV package, for example, from unstable, but satisfy its dependencies from stable or whatever your highest priority distribution is. If it can't do that, it will fail and it will tell you why. This is important because you are asking about whether if you do the meta packages, will it just install a bunch of crap out of testing or unstable onto your system that you don't necessarily want. If you use this method, it will not, but it may not necessarily work because the package's dependencies may not be satisfiable by the younger or lesser distributions. The other option is to specify a dash T option, app dash get dash T unstable. The T takes a distribution argument, install name of package. And what that will do is it will install the package from the distribution that you specify and attempt to satisfy its dependencies from that same distribution, which should pretty much always work, but it may... Incorporate into your system a lot of packages that are dependencies from that other distribution, creating a lot of extra packages on your system. But it it shouldn't necessarily work. What you could do is you could have a Jesse install. You could set up your pin priorities. You can include uh, stable and testing as available distributions, set stable with a higher priority, testing with a lesser priority, and then do. App get the name of the meta package from the Debian ham radio pure blend slash testing because you want to specify where the meta package actually is. So, what it will try and do is install the meta package from the testing distribution and satisfy its dependencies from the stable distribution, which again may or may not work. But if it does work, then you have accomplished your goal. You have the Debian ham radio pure blend installed on Jesse, even though you're not actually running squeeze for the testing distribution. And again, all of this information is laid out really well in this particular tutorial. It's short, it's easy to get through, it explains everything you need to know, and that information, or at least a link to that information, will be into the show notes uh, if I didn't
3: properly explain it to you. Rich, did that make sense to you? Well, it did, but only because I have apt-pinned before, and uh, it's not easy to do it's conceptually a little weird i
2: understand that but if you happen to get the hang of it it is a wonderful mechanism for installing software from a version of the repositories that you are not necessarily running without having to upgrade your entire
3: system to that particular version of the repositories well Um, here's what i do you want to know what i do what do you do here's uh, i'm a synaptic package manager user and I authenticate, and then I go to Settings Repositories, and I open that big thing up, and then um, where it says, uh, uh, you know, like I'm on Jesse, so I'll I'll go to Deb Jesse, and I will just um, I will just change Jesse to Stretch, and then I will click OK, and then I will hit uh, Update, which updates the repositories, and then I very carefully, very carefully, you got to follow the steps only install what I wanted to install from stretch, which would be the, you know, the ham radio pure blend stuff, which is ham radio antenna, ham radio task cell, tasks, ham radio tools. When I'm done installing that, then I go back to the repositories. I click on the one that said stretch. I change it back to Jesse. I click OK, And then I click, um, reload, uh, reload. I said update. It's actually reload. And then that will reload the, um, the, what, the apt cache with the Jesse data? Does that make sense? Yes. The problem is if you click mark all upgrades while you've got all the stretch loaded up in there, you're... <laughs> you're <laughs> you're, you're going to have stretch and you <laughs> may have a broken system, yes. You're going to have a broken system. Uh, pro- more than more than likely, you'll have a broken system. So you can do it that way where you change the repositories, only install what you want. And I've, I've done that successfully with some software... But you can get into a situation where it's like, oh, this dependency isn't satisfiable. You know, it's not not the correct version. So you go ahead and you you put the stretch version in and then it breaks something on your Jesse machine. Yep. So you kind of got to be careful with the dependencies.
2: Yes, you absolutely, absolutely have to do. And the the probably the biggest caveat when it comes to installing things from repositories in general is trying to back out of or Fix a broken dependency problem because sometimes it's easy and sometimes it is not. I, I've actually had dependency problems that were only fixed by a
3: reinstall. Oh yeah, and that's what. Well, that's the joy of Linux. <laughs> if you want that's to call the joy it joy of GNU/Linux. Sure. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But
2: we won't harp on that too much. Anyway, that link will be in the show notes. You've, you've uh, got a couple of ways to do it. It's, it's not as difficult as it sounds. It really isn't. It's just a couple of lines of config file, and I believe you can have the system you're looking for. So, And if you have any further questions, you know, don't hesitate to hit us up, and we will do our best to answer them for you.
3: Yes, we will.
2: All right, moving on to something that's a little bit easier to deal with. We have a message from John McGrath over on Google+. Uh, he said, new format for the podcast? Why, yes, John, there is. Uh, While I enjoy the idea of quick stories regarding Ham Radio and Linux, I also enjoy the in-depth segments discussing software and issues. Thanks again for a great podcast. Well, you probably are going to love this episode because it's kind of full of both. So <laughs> thanks anyway for the feedback. We appreciate that. We also got a comment on episode number 163 from Jeremy, Kilo Delta 5, Hotel Quebec, November, who says, "I don't see the Green Country Hamfest on your calendar events. Are you going to have anyone there? Come on, Russ, surely you can make it from your little corner of Southwest Missouri down to Claremore for an awesome Hamfest." And uh, to which I replied to Jeremy, "Yes, we're going to be at the Green Country Hamfest and don't call me surly." I don't think this episode will actually be out before this weekend, which is when the Green Country Ham Fest actually is. And there's only, as far as I can tell, one person in the chat room listening to us right now, who is uh, Victor Alpha 7, X ray, X ray Mike. So he's the only person who's going to know that Cheryl and I will be at the Green Country Ham Fest in Claremore, Oklahoma on April 8th and 9th, 2016, except for those people who actually also go there. Anyway, we hope to see you there. And yes, Jeremy, we will be there. And like I said, don't call me Surly. He actually did say Surly. <laughs> Surly. Yep, that's what he said. Surly.
3: Uh, yeah, Green Country Ham Fest. It sounds so quaint. It
2: is, as I have come to understand, the largest ham fest in Oklahoma. So, really? Really. Claremore, Oklahoma is just north- northeast of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's a two-day ham fest from four to nine, I believe, on Friday and eight to three, if I'm not mistaken, on Saturday,
3: and Linux in the Ham Shack will be there, so hopefully it, we get to see it's all It's the same place until last year. It's in three days. Yes, it is. Holy mackerel. That's fantastic. That's great. It's, uh, it's the biggest and the best in Oklahoma. You want to know what the grand prize is? What's the grand prize? FTDX3000 from Yezu. It's the rig of choice for the 2016 GCHF. Oh, that would be the Green County uh, Ham Fest. Holy mackerel, they got great prizes. A DX3000, an FT991, that's an HF rig. Uh, An FTM400XDR, that's that uh, dual-band VHF, UHF. Wow, those are good prizes, way better than the ones in Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on.
2: All right. Thanks, Jeremy, KD5HQN, and I know we will see you out at the Green Country Ham Fest coming up this weekend. So moving on, we've got a really long bit of feedback from Johnny, November 4, Juliet Echo Kilo, and I'm going to try and get through this as fast as I can. So here we go. He says, I know I'm a bit late in posting this. I have just been so busy as of late, as have we, that I have not been able to listen to you folks for a while. I go away, and now you have a completely different co-host. Welcome, Rich.
0: Yay. Hi. Hi.
3: (laughs) Hi. (laughs)
2: <laughs> to the show, and I must say I have enjoyed listening to you. I think you'll make a pretty good co host if you can handle it. Russ must be a real taskmaster because he can't seem to hold on to co host very long.
0: <laughs> well that is true.
2: <laughs> ha ha ha. Just kidding. Uh to comment on some of these topics this week, I would say if you are sensitive to RF, move to so called RF dead zones or wear chain mail and or a suit of armor. Sad state of affairs for both SourceForge and Linux Mint to be a tablet or not to be a tablet that is what all the phones and laptops say tablets are interesting but i think people want them to be like laptops that fit in your pocket but manufacturers just don't get it anyway good luck to ubuntu most tablets have not done well in the market even apple's ipad now i just don't understand why anyone wanted to use windows do like the russians do and dump windows while you can I have heard that Microsoft is doing forced upgrades to Windows 10. If you can imagine working away and the audio update pops up and tells you that it's going to patch your PC, you think nothing about it and let it do its thing. It then says it has to reboot to complete the update, so you let it reboot. You go get your coffee, take a break while your machine is rebooting and applying the patches. You get back to find out that you now have to log into Windows 10, but when you left the machine at Windows 7. This is crazy, but that is exactly what is happening. So I don't mean to rant, but I too was surprised a few years ago when I got my ham license to find out that most software for hams are window-based and not open source for us hams that like to tinker. So I've made it my mission to hunt down software that is open source for hams to use it, and it is because of this and a few other podcasts and blogs that I can now do everything that Windows hams could do, but using either Linux or FreeBSD. I plan to start building tutorials for these apps and sharing them. Anyway, I'm going to cut this post short, or perhaps long, since so it is already too long to read on air, but I read it anyway. But I want to thank you guys for all your hard work. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes to the Computer World article about the forced Windows 10 upgrades. And if you want to do tutorials in the open source world, you might want to talk to Matt KD9BWJ. I believe that's the right call sign. that's all right, yeah. Uh, who is doing that at org? He would probably love to have your assistance on uh, putting those tutorials out there. So... Thanks, anyway. Uh, Johnny always has great feedback and lots of it. Uh, call sign again, November 4, Juliet Echo Kilo. Woo! One more. One more. All right, we also had a Facebook message from Darren King, who says the Hills Amateur Radio Group, HARG, H A R G, have their ham fest real soon. That's Sunday, April 17th. And you can find out more information about the HARG At www.harg.org.au for those of us lucky enough to be anywhere near Australia. That's cool. Thanks, Darren, for that bit of information. And now I get to shut up for a minute and we get to listen to Cheryl talk about some cool dessert y type stuff.
0: Woohoo! Yay! Yeah, I've, I've not been doing many desserts here lately, so I found this recipe today and I thought, ooh, that sounds good. So, anyway, today's recipe is for tiramisu cheesecake. I love tiramisu. Russ has not been a terribly big fan of it. Eh, mezza, mezza. Uh, Well, that was also before you're drinking coffee. You might be a little more favorable right. to it now. Um, but because we live in rural Missouri, you can't find ladyfingers, which is a necessary component of tiramisu, anywhere. Um, so, you know, rural area, no ladyfingers, not making tiramisu around here. But this recipe does not use ladyfingers. It actually uses vanilla wafers. So, I am very intrigued by this. I have not made it, of course, but...
2: What do you mean, of course?
0: I have not made it, of course. You just said two seconds ago that we are busier than one arm paper hangers.
2: Well, you don't want to let people know that you don't make these recipes.
0: I have not made this one yet. Your parents will be here in a few weeks. Guess what's going to be for <laughs> See, dessert We're going to have night. tiramisu cheesecake. Yep. All right. There we go. <laughs> Sounds good. So, anyway, it uses vanilla wafers, instant coffee granules, uh, some hot water. Uh, cream cheese, sugar, sour cream, eggs, uh, whipped topping, and which would be cool whip for most of us, and some baking cocoa. And you whip that all together and make yourself a little tiramisu cheesecake, which sounds wonderful right now. So,
2: well, I don't know. I'm not a big sweet fan anymore. I, I grew up on sweets, and now I think I'm kind of over it. But
0: Could that be because I bake cakes?
2: Maybe. I don't know.
0: Yeah, there's tubs of buttercream in the refrigerator, and you're just yeah, yeah used to you're in it with a spoon, and now you're just like boo yeah. buttercream
2: can't do it really much so. anymore. So oh well, but all of the instructions on how to put that tiramisu cheesecake will be in the show notes. You can find that on Cheryl's website too, if she ever gets around to updating oh. it.
3: <laughs> I've had you know, so much stuff going on. Here
2: I know lately. one more of those things to do. Anyway, yeah, we're kind of in between concerts tonight. Last night we saw John Mellencamp. Tomorrow we're going to see Mumford, Mumford and, and Sons. Sons.
0: Next Friday we're seeing ZZ Top, ZZ Top and then, two Fridays after that it's The Who.
2: So we got all kinds of stuff going on. And then but, your
0: parents will be here like yeah. right after that.
2: Then we've got a ham fest in between there and we got Hamvention somewhere along the line and yeah, poker
0: it's, and cards against humanity and karaoke.
2: And yeah, we don't have a moment to ourselves. But anyway, we're going to move on to the social media roundup. So let's Woo! round up some social media.
0: Oh, that means I got to scan down to that part. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep it sure does
0: i was so hoping to get out of that nope <laughs> what because i've skipped the whole night tonight
2: yep pretty much
0: uh-huh all right fine okay so for our donations and subscriptions category we have jonas arulo jeremy hall michael Connolly, harrison kyle scott Pettigrew, bob Yerke, paul griffith ronald ikey johnny kinsey brian smith john spriggs robert halliday ben Schram. Michael Aiello, John Clark, Rob Branch Dash, Edward Donnelly, Donald Gover, Alan Wilson, and down Stephen. Oh wait, Stephen Sainer, Dylan Engel, Jason Marinero, uh, Marinero, Marinero, whatever. <laughs> Just, I get that wrong every week. Yeah, you think you've learned? Yeah, no, no <laughs> old dog, no new tricks. Uh, Ronald Nesler, James Blocker, Doug Redder. Michael Lasky, Darren King, Petra Kartsakis, yeah, sorry Petro, Donna Farron, and Gary Horlick. I need a bigger laptop. On Facebook this week, we had Humberto Toval, Sylvain Descoto dew Robert Lee and Brian Sim, Google Plus was Jonathan Straub, Twitter was at Ben Landis, at HB9FXQ, At SM0RUX and at KC9YJP. Nobody joined us on YouTube. Nobody. Oh, no. We did have somebody on the mailing list. Yay. Kirk joined us this week. Yay. (laughs) Yay, Kirk.
3: And you know who you are. (laughs) (laughs)
0: And only you know who you are. And there was no merchandise sales this week.
3: He could be my ex-brother-in-law.
0: (laughs) Ooh.
2: <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> he could also be Kirk Douglas, but I'm betting against it.
0: <laughs> he, if it's your ex-brother-in-law, maybe he's stalking you.
3: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh no. Are and you that scared HB9, yet? you know, he's from uh, he's from Switzerland. <laughs> Sorry, stop, hit the stop button again. Sorry.
2: <laughs> this episode is already going to be a double episode and that's after I edit it. So
0: well, that's okay. So you don't have to do one next week or yeah, week after it, next. It
2: doesn't really work that way. So you could
0: right. say, a, you know, this episode will be continued next time.
2: <laughs> to be continued. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that. But anyway, I'm going to push the button. That means you're going to hear some music, and there it is. And we're going to get on out of here. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this really, really long episode of Linux in the Ham Shack, number one hundred and sixty-six. You can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby Linux con or Ham Fest. We love feedback. You can email us at info at LHSpodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave a voicemail at one nine oh nine LHS show. That's 1-909-547-7469. Visit our IRC channel. Octothorpe LHS podcast on free note. Subscribe to our mailing list. You can get show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts at cafepress.com
0: slash
2: LHS podcast. You can also help out the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. Listen to us live every other Monday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's Tuesdays at 0100 Zulu. During daylight savings, it's 0200 Zulu when it's not daylight savings our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website check out our website at lhspodcast.info for everything you ever wanted to know about the show thank you to all of our listeners live at quasi live past present and future we appreciate every single one of you Again, this has been episode number 166 of Linux in the Ham Shack. And from Studio 3D in Southwest Missouri, I'm Russ, K5TUX. That over there is Cheryl.
0: Good night, everyone.
2: And from somewhere out in the wilds of Colorado is Rich, KD0RG.
3: 7-3, everybody. Have a fantastic couple of weeks.
2: And we'll see you in a fortnight's time minus a day. Hope everyone has a great time. Catch you then. my place